We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Thank you for joining in with me as we are about to embark on quite a doozy of a chapter. We are going to be hitting quite a few topics that can be considered controversial, that are deep, that are um, absolute, and will absolutely be convicting to somebody who wants to remain in darkness or remain in a truth that is comfortable to them. And so if I've kind of got your attention on that, we're going to move forward in this chapter and, and, and I'm going to break this down in such a way um, as is my method in teaching the word. I, I fully believe that when we go through the word of God, if we have anything within ourselves that is contrary to his holy truth, um, it will always bring conviction every single time. It is impossible to live in a violation to God's word through what we have revealed to us in Jesus Christ in this new covenant. It is impossible to live in violation to that and not find conviction from the Holy Spirit within if we are a child of God. And here's what I mean by that. And actually here, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but here's further proof of that. The job of the Holy Spirit within us is to lead us into all truth. So if his job is to lead us into all truth, if we stand contrary to that, then the Spirit will convict us of what is contrary to truth in order to lead us into truth. It's, it's his DNA. It's what he's going to do. And so, we're going to go through this. Hopefully, I'm going to break this down in such a way that the Lord will give you understanding and and use my mouth as a mouthpiece to be able to bring understanding to you. Uh, The Lord is going to give us understanding in all things. It's not me, but I get the privilege of being a mouthpiece. You get the privilege of being a mouthpiece to represent God Almighty, to convey His truth to a, a needy and dying world. And even within the church, a misguided church on many levels. And so we're going to look at this, get right into this. And uh, I hope this brings edification to you, but more so just a maturation in your spiritual walk with God through Jesus Christ. So that you can ultimately put on um, a greater representation unto the world and to his church of what it looks like to be a person who is filled with both grace and truth as Jesus was. So let's get into this. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will tell you a question. I'm sorry, I, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? 
But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Notice it wasn't where he came from, but it says where it came from. Because the question wasn't necessarily, um, was John from heaven? It was, was the baptism of John from heaven. So it says that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, And neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so essentially the question that they're, that they're asking here is, What authority do you get, Jesus, to be doing these things and saying these things of what you're saying? He's preaching the gospel. And essentially what he's preaching is not necessarily the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because he hadn't done it yet, but that the scriptures in the old had foretold that this was going to happen and that he was going to be the atonement for the sins of the people and the access point of man unto God. And they're like, wait a second, hold up. Where are you getting the authority to talk about such, such things? Where are you getting off on saying that this is, um, this is truth, right? There's a similar thing in John chapter 9 where he's talking about this very similar type thing in which this guy who was born blind, and it's, it's a fascinating concept, and I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but at the very beginning he says, he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, okay? So from birth, this man was born blind, from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Have you ever thought about that concept? Like I said, I don't have a lot of time to go into this transmigration of soul that the Jews actually believed um, in, in the concept of. But they asked him a question. Who sent this man that he was born blind? Think about that for just a moment. Or was it his parents? Jesus answered, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so on this one, he goes on, he heals this guy. And then this guy, so elated and excited that he was healed, that his eyes had been opened, it says that they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. And it was a Sabbath, and we know how the Pharisees looked at the Sabbath and how Jesus should have been healing people on the Sabbath. And he says, this man's not from God, but he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's healing on the blind. He's healing the blind. He's doing these things on the Sabbath. He should not be working on the Sabbath. I just talked about this concept with my kids as we were going through Deuteronomy earlier on. They totally missed the point that it was even a command in the law that whether it was on a Sabbath or not, an ox or a donkey, if it fell into a pit, could be brought out. But here's Jesus bringing these human souls out of bondage on a Sabbath day and he was ridiculed for it. He goes on in this concept, um, starting in verse 24. He's going back and forth kind of with the Pharisees in this point. And at that point, it had already been declared that anyone who was to follow Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue, which is a major deal. So they brought his parents in there, and they're like, we're not going to take a stand. We don't know what's going on. Why don't you ask our son, okay, because we don't want to get punished for it. And the son, right, he, is, he has just been like healed of this blindness. And verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. See, his testimony was speaking volumes to help his faith. 
And these guys are saying, glorify God. I want you to glorify God. This man is a sinner. The guy's like, I, I, I can't speak to that. I don't know the word like you do. I, I, I haven't been raised up in, in Pharisaicism. I've been blind since I've been a beggar. I don't know. All I can know is what he's done for me. Recently, I was um, able to kind of lead a, something we call a journey group at the church that we're at, in which we have these um, set-aside people within the fellowship the leadership leadership kind of appoints us to and um and so we're supposed to kind of live life with these people get to know them live life with them challenge one another encourage one another and the leaders of that group were out of town and so um we met and i had this opportunity to kind of lead the group and i asked this question of what has christ done for you like i don't want to know just how your week's been i don't want to know um just what you're learning those are great questions but they only take you so deep in understanding a person. And our group's relatively new. We don't, I like when we got in there, we didn't know anybody. I want to know what Jesus has done for you. And so I asked this question, and it's interesting the responses of the ones who are super excited to give, and those who are kind of hesitant to give. And, and it's just got me thinking of like, in correlation to this guy. This guy was excited. He was going to tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. And man, how cool is it that we as the church get the privilege to tell people our testimony of what Jesus has done for me. And though I might not know the ins and outs of Scripture quite the way other people might, or though I don't know the full depths of everything, man, I know what He's done for me. I know who I was. And I want to tell everybody what He's done, what He's doing, and what I know He will continue to do as I abide in Him. That's a beautiful thing that we should never be hesitant or reluctant to even share. But on this one, he goes on in verse 26. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to be his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Now I want you to catch this because this is going to go back into Luke Chapter 20, in which the authority of Jesus is challenged. These Pharisees says, we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, meaning Jesus, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. See, right here you see this concept that's underlying that Jesus dealt with is that these people knew that Moses had come from God and delivered them a law. But they didn't know Jesus had come from God. There's false signs and false wonders galore from false prophets. I mean, you could even see it in Janus and Jombres in Egypt whenever these false prophets of Egypt were doing the similar signs, but eventually it got to a point where they couldn't replicate what Moses and Aaron were doing. And the same way, it's the same thing with Jesus. But the concept here is the authority of Christ. That's what they're challenging. And here's what I want to tell you. People who don't want to receive Jesus will find every excuse 
as to why they don't as to why they won't until those excuses run out you see the pharisees were looking for reasons to not have to obey jesus instead of looking for the reason to obey him and i think if we're not careful as the church we can fall into that same thing we can begin looking like very simple teachings of the word we can begin looking for reasons and justifications as to why we don't have to obey instead of just simply looking at the one reason that we should and that's because he is worthy and I'm going, to, I'm going to challenge you in the same way that we're going to find that Jesus challenges the Pharisees when it comes to his authority. I'm going to challenge you in that same way. Stop looking for reasons to not have to obey Jesus. And focus on the one reason as to why you should. You see, on here, he brings them a question to their question, which was a Pharisaical tactic is what they were trained in, of how to control discussion with questions and how to prove truth with questions. By the time they were 17, they had to be skilled in this concept. And Jesus is, is um, pulling a Pharisee on the Pharisees. He asked them a question in response to their question and they couldn't answer, so he says, then neither will I answer you. Because if you're not wanting to receive that I have been given my authority from God, to both do and say the things that I'm doing and saying, if you don't want to receive that, then you're not going to receive it no matter what I do or say. Because your heart is already against me. He goes on in verse 9, and I wish I could spend more time on each one of these because some of these topics are so important to us even in the church because we can fall victim to the same thing the same sin nature that was in them is still in us and I know a lot of people are like no, 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 no I'm a new creation then why do you still sin? the fact of the matter is is you've been given a new creation inside of you and that's why Galatians 5 says the flesh is still in you you're still warring against the flesh they're still opposed to each other to keep you from doing. That's what it says. It doesn't say to keep an unbeliever as if it's like this battle between the Spirit until you receive Him. He's talking to believers. The flesh is still there. It's on the outside when you come into Christ and it's knocking on that window saying, let me in. Let me take the throne again. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1-3, he talks about these people who are in Christ but they're still of the flesh because they're still having wars and feuds and bickerings and quarrels amongst each other. Because they're still of the flesh, even though they're an infant in Christ. They're in Christ, but they're of the flesh. And if we're not careful, our flesh is going to war against the Spirit, and we're going to start listening to that flesh for justification to not have to obey Jesus. And that's a dangerous place to be in. It's what 2 Corinthians 11, if I remember the, the uh, passage correctly and the reference to it, it's when Paul says, I betrothed you to be a pure virgin before Christ. I presented you as a pure virgin before him, but I'm afraid that the tempter, that the deceiver, that Satan is going to come and he's going to lure your thoughts astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. That your thoughts will be led astray into a waywardness to not have to obey the authority of Jesus in your life. 
So this, the authority of Jesus challenge, that's not just for the Pharisees, that's not just for unbelievers. This is a concept even for us that if we're not careful, we can fall victim to. So he goes on, he says, and he began to tell the people this parable. So this is in conjunction with what he just said. And I'll, I'll link the two in just a moment. But this is in conjunction with what he just stated. Okay, about his authority being challenged. And so in a continuation of that, he is now going to tell them this parable, which was theme for what Jesus did oftentimes. He would state a truth, or he would declare a truth, or he might kind of work around the truth and what he's trying to state, and then he would tell them a parable to help explain this truth. And he says this, He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I shall send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will recognize his authority. This is my son. And I will send him, and this will be of my authority. What he says is as if I said it. Maybe they would understand his authority. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So we have this breakdown in which Jesus is telling this parable where there's this owner of this vineyard, right? And he's given everything that was needed for this vineyard to produce, and he's looking for fruit from it. But the tenants refuse to give him fruit. The tenants refuse to work it and do what the owner of the vineyard was saying to do. And so the owner, he sends a delegate or he sends a, um, a servant to these tenants who are leasing out this. It doesn't belong to them, it belonged to the owner. But these tenants were not acting the way that the owner had prescribed for them to act to get fruit from this vineyard. So he sends a servant to say, hey guys, change. Or in our terms, repent. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to repent You don't know what you're talking about. We're going to do our own thing. makes me think of Jeremiah in in Jeremiah 43 through 45, I believe, is the stretch of passage that's there in which these people could no longer hear the voice of God. God had turned his back on them. These Jews, his own people, he turned his back on them. So they go to Jeremiah and they say, hey, Jeremiah, he still listens to you. Why don't you appeal on our behalf? Go find out what the Lord wants us to do. We'll do anything. We just want to be in his good graces again. We just want to be in his favor again. We'll do anything. Jeremiah goes for 10 days, he talks to the Lord, he comes back, he says, I got good news, I got not so good news. And they say, okay, okay, tell us, tell us the good news. He says, God will forgive you. God will forgive you. He'll overlook the things that you did, just repent. And they said, oh, that's good news, that's good news. What else, What's, what's the not so good news? He says, you can't go back to Egypt. 
You can't go backwards. You can't go back to the ways of the nations. You can't go back to the way as we would interpret understanding spiritually. You can't go back to the way of your flesh. You cannot live according to the flesh. Don't go back to Egypt. And they essentially look at Jeremiah and they say, you lie. We wanted the good from God, but we don't want that responsibility. We want to be able to have the goodness and the blessings and the promises of God, but we want to live how we want to. Sound familiar? It's many in the church today. And he tells Jeremiah, when Jeremiah approaches him and he says, God, what are we going to do? And God says, look, I'm going to tell you this. My name will no longer be invoked from the mouth of any of them because they put their hand to the plow and they put their voice at work to say that they have denied me. That's the same thing. He sends these servants to get them to repent and they say, no. No, we want the fruits of the vineyard for ourselves. We'll do everything. We want the good for ourselves, but we are not going to take on the responsibility to be under the authority of the owner. This one he says in Isaiah, um, you could even go into Jeremiah chapter 2 and find the very same concept that's there, but in Isaiah chapter 5, check out what he says. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Grapes that couldn't be controlled. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make waste. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they... Rain and no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. He says, I was looking for the right kind of fruit from you, but I got the wrong stuff. I planted this vineyard, and I leased it out to you to tend to it, to have dominion over it, that you could have all the promises that I had afforded you, but you would not sow for my glory, but only for your own. So what am I going to do? I'm going to remove the hedge of protection. And I'm actually going to turn towards you for destruction. So, whoa, hold up a second. We're your people. So, yeah, I know. That's why it hurts me so much. And these Pharisees who knew of Isaiah chapter 5 would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about here. He would have known, or they would have known exactly what he's referencing here. And that's why they responded. When they heard this, they said, surely not. How dare you say that you're speaking on behalf of God and God's going to do this. Well, what did he say in chapter 13 of this exact same book? Verse 34 of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, seeking the fruit from the vineyard, right? How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. The hedge has been removed. I will no longer send rain to satisfy your crops. I will actually turn to you for destruction and not for blessing. 
You catch it? Because he says the exact same thing. You can read the full context of that in chapter 13, 22-35. And you can even go into Romans 11, in which he says the exact same thing in the same concept of the parallel that he's using. In 22, I'm sorry, in, in Romans 11, 11 through 22, he's talking to the Gentiles and he's talking about the Jews, about how they have been cut off so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. This is exactly what he talks about, where he says he's going to come and he's going to give the vineyard to others. The vineyard is the kingdom of God. And Israel used to be that kingdom in a physical way, but once Christ conquered and he became the spiritual fulfillment of that kingdom, it is now the heavenly Jerusalem. It is a kingdom in the heavens that cannot be destroyed. And that is our kingdom as the church of Jesus Christ. It's no longer a physical nation. It's no longer a physical land. It's no longer even a physical people. We are spiritual. That's why he says that the natural person does not accept the things of God, for they are spiritually understood. And the spiritual person judges all. All things, but is himself to be judged by no man. We are a spiritual priesthood, a spiritual people who offer spiritual sacrifices for the spiritual kingdom of God. That is what we come into through Jesus Christ. And the Jews, while still loved of God and still serve a purpose, they have been forsaken because until they come in through Jesus Christ, they are no longer the people of God. And that's what Romans 11 is all about, where he says that they have been cut off as a branch is from the trunk. And they're laying on the ground dead. And God has the power to restore them back again into the olive tree, which is Jesus Christ. But only if they come in through him. And only if they repent. And that's what it talks about. And that's why it even tells us as Gentile Christians, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, Gentile Christian, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. It goes into 1 Corinthians 10 where it says the things that happened to them were instructions and examples for us so that we as the church might not desire evil as they did. Go read it. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-11 I believe is what it is. The concept is all there and he's saying it right here. If you question and challenge the authority of Jesus, you better watch out. Because he received his authority directly from God. In the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was transfigured in glory before Moses and Elijah. We've already talked about this when I went through Luke chapter 9. This is what he says in verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud, the cloud that overshadowed them, God's presence that overshadowed them. While Jesus was there on the mountain talking to Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah had already left, and God's presence comes and overshadows Jesus. And here's a voice that comes out of the cloud saying this, This is my son, my chosen one or my beloved. Listen to him. See, God had already declared that he had given Jesus the authority. So what he says, it's as if God himself said it. That's the authority of Jesus. And if you question his authority, you question the one who sent him. And if you are going to challenge the one who sent him, good luck. It won't end well. So whether you are in Christ or not in Christ, 
don't challenge the Word of God. And don't challenge the authority of Christ. And don't challenge what He says for you to do in your life. The blessings are always on the end of obedience, not on disobedience. So the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Those builders, meaning the Jews, they rejected him. He is now the cornerstone that sets everything in the direction that it needs to be in this new covenant that has built on the foundation of the of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Go read Ephesians chapter 2. It also goes into the concept of what I was saying, that there is no longer a Jew or Gentile when you come into Christ. It is a Christian. You are part of the church. There's no partiality between the two. It is not about the Jews being God's people. They're not even on the team anymore. They're off the team. Their locker's cleared out. They're not allowed on the complex because only when you come in through Jesus Christ do you ever get a portion on the team. And there he says in 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken, meaning that they will be humbled. It is our choice whether we are going to come under the mighty hand of God, that we're going to come under the authority of Jesus Christ, as 1 Peter 5, 6 talks about. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, so that he can give grace to you. It is your choice. It was not God's choice for you, as a Calvinist would believe. It is your choice of what you are going to do. Will you humble yourself under the authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God, or will you not? Because if you choose to humble yourself under that stone, then you will find the blessings of God and the exaltation that awaits you in the end. But if that stone falls on you because you are hardened against it and you will not submit to him, you will not come under his authority... It will crush you. It's the difference between being humbled and humbling yourself. It all depends on what choice you're going to make of who you submit to. Your flesh or Jesus Christ. The scribes going on in this. The scribes, oh man, I'm already at 30 minutes. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. So basically they wanted to kill him. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, and they perceived right. But they feared the people, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, as John tells us. So they watched him, and they tried a different tactic, much like what Satan will try to do for us. If one tactic doesn't work, he'll go to the next one. So here, their tactic wasn't necessarily to destroy him, because they feared what the people were going to do to them and say about them. So instead, they tried to blend in deceitfully to try to get into the fellowship of Christ so as to try to destroy him from within. It's actually what 1 John 2 is all about. It's a passage that many people um, misunderstand and use out of its context of what John is trying to tell us. But when he talks about the Antichrist, when he says, this is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Um, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Then this is the promise that he's made to us eternal life. And right before that, as he's talking about this Antichrist and the abiding in Christ... He says in 18, children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Antichrist. They have no desire, this spirit has no desire to actually be with Christ. It wants to destroy him and everything that he stands for. It is Antichrist. And then he says this, 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They, spirit of the Antichrist, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. The concept here is not referencing a genuine Christian. It's referencing this, identifying the spirit of the Antichrist that's seeking to deceive from within. It's what Jude warns us of. He says, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I find it more necessary to write to you to contend for the faith. For there are many who have crept in unnoticed, who, who eat with us at our love feast, and it says, and they do it without fear, turning the grace of God into sensuality and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. There are people who have crept in, who they have no intent of honoring Christ, but they want to destroy the body from within. This was the tactic of the Pharisees. And I'd love to expound on that topic more. I would just tell you and encourage you, go study it out. And know that the context of 1 John 2 in that passage is about the spirit of the Antichrist. It has no desire whatsoever. It's not identifying a genuine Christian, though you can extract some truths from there for it. That's not the context of it. The context is, is identifying the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's exactly what the Pharisees have right here. Did they want to uphold Christ or did they want to destroy him? So it says that they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now here's what's interesting. They didn't want to just deliver him up to be stoned. They wanted to deliver him up to the governor. Why is that? Well, it's twofold. One, they wanted to humiliate him and shame him. They wanted him to be an example of what it is whenever you try to um, come against the Pharisees and their authority. It had nothing to do with God's authority. It had everything to do with theirs. He challenged them. He questioned them. He told them they were wrong. And they wanted to crucify him for it because they wanted him humiliated and shamed as an example to everybody else. But here's the other side to it. God was working behind the scenes to fulfill prophecy. In Deuteronomy, I think it's in 21, maybe 22, it says that everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed of God. Scripture says that Jesus became the curse for us, as Galatians 3 talks about. And it even brings up the passage in Deuteronomy about, as it is written, curses everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus became the curse on our behalf so that we might have access to God. So it wasn't enough for him to be stoned. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. He had to be hung on a tree. And the only ones who could do that were the Romans who invented the concept of crucifixion, of hanging somebody on a tree. So even in this, God was working to bring about fulfillment of scripture. Going on, it says, Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he's perceived their craftiness and said to them, which is interesting to me as to why they're not challenging him on the law, they're challenging him on the authority of Caesar over a Jew. Now this is a really fascinating thing. Now you might be in another country and this might not hit you as, as much, though it probably will to a degree. But for an American, this is a really difficult thing for us to grasp, even though it is plainly written. And this is one of those things that are going to be extremely toe-crunching for you if you're not careful and if you don't have a desire for truth and utter truth. They challenged him, not with the authority of Moses and the law, but they came in to spy out, or they sent spies 
to try to lead him into something that I said. And they used Caesar in that. And they said, is it, is it right for us to pay Caesar taxes even though that they're unfair? Even though that they um, oftentimes are taking way more than they should? Even though many of them, are, there's no justification for them. They're just saying, hey, you're going to give us this tax whether you like it or not. Or we're going to pillage you and take whatever, you, whatever we want from you. Is it lawful? Is it right for us to do this, Jesus? Because they wanted him to say, no, it's not. You should revolt against that. You should stand up for your, for your rights. You can't let Caesar control you. What does Jesus say? Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. It goes into the concept of taxes. What did Jesus, what was his response? Pay it. But what if it's an unfair tax? Pay it. What if it's taxation without representation? What if they're taxing us for no reason, Jesus? Pay it. Now, what's fascinating about that is that this country in America was actually founded on insubordination and rebellion to God's own word. Because the, the, um, one of the primary reasons for our rebellion and declaration of independence from the governing authorities was taxation without representation. What does Romans 13 tell us? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. He says, even Pharaoh, all these people who have been in positions of authority, God says, I raised you up for this very purpose. I put you in that position for a purpose. Yeah, you might be corrupt, you might, but I'm going to use it for my glory in some way, shape, or form. They've been there, they've been put there by God. And he says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. You will be judged if you resist the authorities in anything that doesn't make you disobey God. Is it my preference to pay a school tax when I homeschool my kids? No. I think that the public school system is, is, a, uh, a, is functioning under the God of this world and is actually us not functioning under the God of heaven and raising our children the way that we should. But I pay school tax every single year, even though I'm against the institution, even though I don't even send my kids there, I have to pay a school tax. Is it my preference? No. Do I do it? Yes. Why? Because God has commanded me to and it honors him is what first peter 2 is all about when he says for the sake of god then obey the authorities as long as it's not making you disobey god pay the tax he even goes on he says uh, would you have no fear the one who's in authority then do what is good you'll receive his approval for he is god's servant for your good but if you do wrong be afraid he's the servant of god Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. He's talking to Christians right here. He says, if you're going to resist the authorities, you will have God's wrath. 
This is what we're talking about in Ephesians 5 when he says the sons of disobedience, they are going to incur God's wrath. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For because of this, you also pay taxes. This is what he's telling the Romans. The Christian church in Rome, who's right in the dead center of everything, he says, guys, pay taxes. It says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor owes. He, he says, just pay it. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He's upholding the teaching that Jesus even gave before they were instituted as the church in the new covenant. And then it's upheld even in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'd encourage you to go read it. He says, even if it's unfair, still do it. Even if it goes against your preference, still do it. It honors God. This is a concept many Americans do not like because whenever the authorities that are there instituted by God, you think you voted them in. It had nothing to do with you. The authorities that are there are there because God wants them in that place for a reason. So when you resist them, you resist God. Anytime you resist an authority that God establishes, you resist him. I want you to think about that. Same way as the whole mask situation. Man, I'll tell you, that, that whole mask situation ruined a lot of churches, including one that I led. Because a lot of people got very selfish and preferential when it came to things. And they had a very um, dangerous spirit of rebellion. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, during COVID in 2020, um, the government ordered that everybody wears masks out in public. And I had people in my fellowship that are like, basically, no, we want to stick the middle finger up to the government. They can't tell us what to do. And here I am going through 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13 and all these various passages. And I'm saying, hey guys, does this cause you to disobey God by putting this piece of cloth on your, on your face? No, it doesn't. But honoring the governing authorities would. And so many people had the notion of, the authorities are trying to tell me to do something that I don't want to do. So I ain't going to do it. Let me just tell you, that is the spirit of the Antichrist at work. That is a spirit of rebellion. And it is not of God. So this concept is a very important concept and a very difficult one for many Christians in America to comprehend. But... Your difficulty in comprehending and obeying it does not make it any less true. It's our job to come under his authority and to do what he's asking us to do regardless of our preference. So then he goes on and he says, There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection. Notice that. The Sadducees and part of the Sanhedrin, you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. The Pharisees upheld it. So these Sadducees came to him who denied it and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brothers. Commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 5. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise all seven left no children and died afterward. <coughs> Excuse me. The woman also died. In the resurrection... Remember what he said in the beginning? They didn't believe in the resurrection. Here they are trying to test him, saying, In the resurrection, Jesus, we want to see whose side you're on. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her 
as their wife. And Jesus, I'm sure at this point, is just thinking like, you guys, y'all are a bunch of idiots. The same exact parallel account is in chapter 22 um, of Matthew. Look what he says in 29 in response to the exact same thing. Jesus said to them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That's how he says it in Matthew. He doesn't include that here in the Luke translation. But in Matthew it says that they don't even know the scriptures. Now that was an insult to the Sadducees. Because they prided themselves on knowing the scriptures. He says, you guys, y'all are fools. You don't even know the scriptures, nor do you understand what the power of God is all about. Here's his response. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. He says, on earth, while you live in this temporal dwelling place... There's marriage and there's being given in marriage. Okay? But listen to what he says. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the next age, the age that is to come, the age in which we dwell with God for all of eternity, the age in which we our abode is in heaven physically and spiritually, it's not just a thing to be taken by faith. It's not just a thing in which physically we're here on this world. It's spiritually we're up and seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father, as Ephesians 2 says. That age in which we prove ourselves worthy of the kingdom of heaven, which you think that if you are, are part of that whole teaching, it's like, well, that's impossible. You can't prove yourself worthy. That's not what, uh, was it First Thessalonians chapter 1 says, or is it Second Thessalonians? Let me read to it. Turn to it real quick and read it for you. And, uh, no, it starts in verse 3. Man, this is like the all-time slowest turning of my pages. Second Thessalonians. Here's what he says. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for, for one another is, is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He says, look, you guys are growing. You're setting an example. I love the church in Thessalonica. I get a brag on you to everybody else because your faith and love are increasing because those are the two building blocks of everything of the faith. Okay, check out what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. They had to prove themselves worthy because God's not going to just let scrubs into heaven. They had to prove themselves worthy. And here he says, those who prove themselves worthy, who endure to the end, who, who their faith is growing and they are enduring in Christ. As it talks about in Hebrews 10.36, so he says, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. Those who prove themselves worthy and faithful to the end in abiding in Christ Jesus and living according to the way that he wants us to live in faith and love, he says... Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, the age of heaven, which we are spiritually and physically with the Father. And to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. He says, you can still die on earth. On this earth, there's marriage, there's given in marriage. And that whole thing, and it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing necessarily, depending on the context of what's being referenced. As in the days of Noah, they were marrying and giving in marriage. That was a negative context. He says, no, marriage is a good thing. And in this age, I want you to enjoy it. But understand, it's actually pointing to something greater. I get so discouraged and frustrated 
at the men and the women who make their marriages or their family an idol in this life. It is a golden calf that many people do and they're taking something that God gave to us and they're using it for themselves instead of God's glory. The gold that was given to the people when they came out of Egypt, God moved on the hearts of the Egyptians to give them the gold and it says they carried that with them and his intent was that they would use it for the temple but instead when Moses went up on the mountain they forged a golden calf and they worshipped this golden calf with the gold that God was supposed to have glory from using it for the temple. They used it for themselves instead and they thought they were worshipping God because they even said that they held a feast unto worshipping God. And marriage is the same way. It's why I wrote in my book that my wife and I wrote in chapter 4, The Golden Calf, and how marriage has become an idol today. Marriage is not evil. But forging it into a golden calf is. And he says, look, you don't know the scriptures. You don't even understand. In the resurrection... Once we abide in heaven for all of eternity, it's not about marriage or giving in marriage. It is about being married to the Lamb. That's what it's about. And if you don't get that, then you're never going to get it. And he goes on, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord of God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. The God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead but the living for all live to him. He's proving the resurrection there. That even though Abraham was dead, he was still his God. And even though Isaac was alive, um, or I'm sorry, Jacob was alive while Abraham had died, he was still the God of all of them, the living and the dead. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But he said to them in response, Here they are in trying to build him up. Even though we know that they're spies and we know that all this stuff is going on, they're trying to say, hey, you spoke well. That's really good. Really great, Jesus. He said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And I'm trying to wrap it up here real quick. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? What is God, what is Jesus establishing right here? He's establishing the, the hierarchy of authority. And even though Jesus, prior to being born on this earth, as the firstborn of all creation, as the Son of God, who's never referenced the Son of God in the Old Testament, as the Son of God, it says that he was before David. He was the Lord of David. And then, even though he was the Lord of David, he became in the lineage of David as a man. It's the hierarchy of God. And I would like to go more in depth on that, but I'm already at 50 minutes and I really try to keep these things about 45, so I'm going to move on. I'll let you study that out a little bit more, but just understand, God has a hierarchy of authority and he expects us to abide in it. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. A couple of things I want us to understand about this one. One, I think all of us have somewhat of a desire to be honored. To be shown that we have value. To be um, applauded for some of our efforts. I think every one of us have a desire. And that's not necessarily inherently bad. 
You could read this passage and say that's bad. But God yet says that like for elders who labor well in teaching and preaching, they receive a double honor. The only time it's ever listed in the scripture for anyone on earth to receive a double honor is the elders who labor in teaching and preaching. We're supposed to show them honor. We're supposed to applaud them. We're supposed to show them they have value. We're supposed to encourage them. So showing honor and receiving honor is not the the enemy in this. Notice what he says. And the places of honor and feast, they, they love these things, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense. This word that's used there is prophesis, and it means for show or to be cloaked outward. They do it, they, they, they serve for the favor of the people, not for the glory of God. Again, it's like marriage. Marriage is not bad. Showing honor and receiving honor is not bad. But when it becomes turned inward, it can become an idol and it, beco- and it becomes negative. These guys, they wanted these scribes. And he says, beware of them. Don't, don't imitate them. They do all these things because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They want to be honored because it builds them up and it makes themselves feel good about themselves. He says, you better watch out for that. Because that can tear you down real quick when you begin to exalt yourself among men. What does God say? That anything that's exalted among men is an abomination to Him? That's what Jesus says in one of the Gospel accounts. When we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. But if anyone humbles himself, he will be exalted. That's a formula of heaven that he's given to us. So if you serve humbly, and you labor in your teaching and your preaching as an elder, and you do it well, God will make sure that you are honored among the people. In some way, shape, or form, you will be honored. But if you choose to exalt yourself before man and you turn it inward, and it becomes about you, you will be humbled. And then the other thing I want you to see is that at the very end it says they will receive the greater condemnation. Now I want you to see something about this. There's levels of condemnation. How can there not be levels of condemnation if they receive the greater condemnation? And this is something that I want us to understand because most everybody would say that Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But I want you to finish out what that verse actually says. If you read the King James, it goes on to say it. If you read another translation, oftentimes there's going to be a little footnote there, although it goes on into it in 3 and 4 in the same concept. So the context, well, contextually, it adds this element into the passage. But I want you to understand. It goes on and says, for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you walk according to the Spirit, you cannot be under any condemnation. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. But if you choose, even as a Christian, if you choose to walk in a fleshly manner, you can come come under condemnation. Even though it might be a lesser condemnation, you can come under condemnation. And you're like, well, that's just not what Romans 8.1 says. Well, let me just tell you. Several different, there's four different places in scripture that I found. Three of them I remember off the top of my head. One of them I can't remember, but I just visited this two weeks ago. So I know it's in there. One of them is whenever Paul has to rebuke Peter in Galatians, he talks about it and he says that he had to rebuke him because he was showing partiality between the Jews and the Greeks. And it says that I rebuked him to his face because he stood 
condemned. It's literally the word that ESV uses. He stood condemned. Why? Because he was walking according to the flesh. In First Timothy chapter 5, it talks about widows um, who choose to take on celibacy and commit themselves to the church, but then afterwards they stray after their passions and they go after uh, marriage and, and all this stuff. And it says, and they break their vow of celibacy, and it says, and incur condemnation. In James, in chapter 5, it talks about letting your yes be yes and your no be no so that you don't fall under condemnation. All of those are written to Christians. So the premise is this. If you walk in the Spirit, there is no, no, no condemnation. And it actually proves the context of chapter 7 in Romans whenever Paul's saying, if I'm going to live according to my flesh and try to replicate Christ, I will be an utter failure. But if I choose to put to death the deeds of the flesh and walk by the Spirit, I will be an utter victor. And that's why he says, so if you're going to live by the Spirit, there is no condemnation for you. But if you choose to live by the flesh, then there can be. Though it might be a lesser condemnation, there will be a condemnation. And here you see that those who try to make life about themselves... They receive a greater condemnation. So, that's chapter 20. I'm going to get into chapter 21 here in just a little bit. I've got to go do some things and I'll be back. I'm going to try to get chapter 21 for you guys as we work through this. But those are some very important topics that we need to discuss. And we need to be having these conversations in the church today about them. At least in the church in America. I know it is rampant all throughout. Misguided um, and and, um, erroneous doctrines have formed among men that have been justified justified um, all because we have chosen to not come under the full authority of the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ and exemplify the cross as ambassadors of Jesus Christ who God makes his appeal to the world through us. We need to be having these conversations. We need to stop shying away from them and we need to stop making our opinions equal to God's authority in Christ. Y'all be blessed.